One benefit of living in the 21st century AD is that we have over 20 centuries of church history behind us to study and to learn from. We can trace the great work of God in advancing the gospel and expanding Christ's kingdom over nearly two millennia. You know, friends, most of the time, gospel ministry is painstakingly slow, methodical work. And there's a reason, I think, that the ministry of the word is compared in the gospels to the sowing of seeds and the reaping of a harvest. It requires patience and waiting on the Lord to work. But sometimes in the history of the church, God has moved in such a broad, sweeping, and seemingly fast way as to leave no doubt that what happened was indeed a work, a unique work of the Spirit. Such was the case in in the New England colonies uh, in the early 1700s, and specifically in Massachusetts. Uh, The work uh, that started in in Northampton, Massachusetts, quickly spread to other towns in the year 1734, and eventually to other colonies, in a work of God that became known in our church's history as the Great Awakening. And Jonathan Edwards, pastor of the church in Northampton where God began the work, he wrote an essay describing what happened there called this, a faithful narrative of the surprising work of God in the conversion of many hundred souls in Northampton. Just a short little title. Listen to how Edwards described what God was doing there at that time. He writes, This seems to have been a very extraordinary dispensation of providence. God has in many respects gone out of and much beyond his usual and ordinary way. The work in this town and others about us has been extraordinary on account of the universality of it, affecting all sorts, sober and vicious, high and low, rich and poor, wise and unwise. God has also seemed to go gone out of his usual way in the quickness of his work and the swift progress his spirit has made in his operations on the hearts of many. It is wonderful that persons should be so suddenly and yet so greatly changed. Many have been taken from a loose and careless way of living and seized with strong convictions of their guilt and misery. And in a very little time, old things have passed away and all things become new with them. Friends, this this work of God was was so significant there in the New England colonies that I'm not sure that we've seen anything quite like it again, at least in American church history. And yet, even this great work of God back there in 1734 doesn't compare with what we're going to see today in the book of Jonah, where, friends, an entire city, having never before encountered God's word, turned on a dime from their sin to God. It's perhaps the greatest widespread revival in human history. So let's turn to where that account is found in Jonah chapter 3. Jonah chapter 3, it's on page 775 of the Bible underneath your chair. Please use that if you don't have a Bible with you today. Friends, when we left Jonah last week, he had just been vomited onto the dry land by the fish that had swallowed him and really surprisingly saved his life. Instead of drowning, Jonah was saved through the waters of judgment in the the most unexpected way imaginable. Not only did God save Jonah through the fish, it's evident that he began to change Jonah from within the fish. Whereas in the ship's belly, on the waters of the Mediterranean, Jonah had slept, 
in the fish's belly, Jonah was alert. He prayed. He prayed a prayer of thanksgiving to the Lord that really culminated what, what we saw in the shout there at the end of the prayer. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Our Lord met Jonah at the gates of death. He raised him, as it were, to new life again. And now in chapter 3, the Lord recommissions Jonah for the task from which Jonah initially ran. That's where we're going to pick the story back up in Jonah 3. Let's read, starting in verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he rose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented from the disaster that he had said that he would do to them. And he did not do it. This is the word of the Lord. Friends, each week I try to give you a main idea of the text that I trust will be the main idea of the sermon. This morning, I think the main idea of Jonah 3 is this. God extends his mercy to the unlikeliest people who turn from their sin to him. Our God extends his mercy, his saving, loving kindness to the unlikeliest people. In this case, to the Gentile people, to the pagan people, to the enemy people, people who turn from their sin to Him. Three points this morning from our text. Number one, a fresh start. Number two, a shocking response. And number three, a merciful God. Beloved, I pray that we might see in this story the stunning mercy of the Lord. You know, sometimes God's mercy, friends, is just, it's just meant to shock us. It's meant to knock our socks off, as it were. I think that's what it's meant to do here in Jonah 3. We're meant to be delightfully shocked that our Lord would mercifully recommission rebellious Jonah. And we're meant to be doubly shocked that God's mercy extends even to people like the Ninevites. Let's look at this first point, a fresh start. We see that in verses 1 through the middle of verse 3. Picture the scene with me. Jonah has just been mercifully expelled from the fish's belly. He's back on dry land somewhere along the Mediterranean coast. It's not too hard to imagine Jonah kind of rubbing his eyes, maybe pinching himself to make sure that what he saw before him was not a dream. Am I really alive? Maybe Jonah fell to his knees once again 
and praised the one who had saved him by his mercy and power. Maybe after that, he rose to his feet and started walking towards city lights in the distance. We, we don't know the specifics. The author really isn't concerned with those details, is he? Instead, he flattens out that moment completely to show us that the point of the fish was so that God might recommission Jonah for his mission. Salvation, friends, leads to service. Verse 1 says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. These words should astonish us. Not only did the Lord mercifully spare Jonah's life, he reinstated Jonah to his prophetic office. Friends, it would, it would be sufficient mercy for us to marvel and wonder if God simply rescued his wayward prophet. But the Lord goes far above and beyond. He not only saved Jonah, he restored him entirely. In fact, it's like the author of these first three verses writes with a big yellow highlighter to showcase the second chance that Jonah is given. It's like literary deja vu. Okay, look, look with me. Okay, scan your eyes back to verses 1 to 3 of chapter 1 to see the similarities. In 1-1, the word of the Lord came to Jonah. In 3-1, the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. In 1-2, the Lord said to Jonah, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. And he says the same thing in 3-2. Both 1-3 and 3-3 begin with the phrase, And Jonah rose. And it's at this point, friends, that the new reader of this story is meant to lean forward in suspense. And I even paused when I read it intentionally so that you might do the same. And Jonah rose. Is he going to run this time? See, did he learn anything inside the Lord's school of suffering? And thankfully, the answer is yes, he did. Whereas in 1-3, Jonah rose and ran west to Tarshish, this time, Jonah arose and headed east to Nineveh. In 1-3, Jonah ran from the presence of the Lord. This time, Jonah obeyed according to the word of the Lord, the text says. Brothers and sisters, the Lord did not owe Jonah a second chance. He did not owe Jonah another opportunity, but he mercifully provided it to him. Now, I was talking to one of our members, Norman Larson, after the members meeting last week, and Norman said, I, I love Jonah because we see such humanity in him. Yes, we do. Yes, we do. He, Norman said, when you start criticizing Jonah, you quickly have to start criticizing yourself because of how much like Jonah we all are. Well said. Friends, how true that is. Which one of us has not directly disobeyed the Lord? and ignored the clear directives of his word. Man, certainly all of us could look back at our lives without Christ and realize how saturated our lives were by disobedience to God. We didn't just need a clean slate, friends. We needed a new slate. And that's what God gave us. We are new creations in Christ Jesus. But even after having tasted God's salvation and after having received the gift of the Spirit as we have in Christ, there's not one of us that could lay claim to a flawless responsiveness to God's word. Not one of us can boast of a perfect alignment with his purposes. In fact, friends, I'm guessing if I went out around the room this morning and asked the question, tell me about a time in your life that, that you've bucked against the purposes of the Lord. All of us could very quickly give not, probably not just one example, 
but several. Friends, praise God for his mercy. He's the God of second chances. I wonder, friends, do do you see any similarities with a certain disciple of Jesus who also sinned greatly, but then was used mightily by the Lord? That's right, Simon Peter. Think about it. Jonah rebelled and ran from the Lord's presence. Peter denied the Lord three times on the eve of his crucifixion. In fact, Peter's rejection of the Lord's purpose began back in Matthew 16 when, when Peter actually rebuked Jesus after Jesus predicted his death and resurrection. And in this very chapter, Jesus called Simon Peter, Simon Bar-Jonah. Simon, son of Jonah. Now, it's possible that Jonah was simply another way of saying uh, the name of Peter's dad, John. But I think it's also possible, and maybe even probable, that Jesus was highlighting a connection between the prophet Jonah and the apostle Peter. Both made devastating mistakes. Both were graciously restored. They're both witnesses to the God of second chances. Do you remember where Peter was after the, the Lord rose from the dead and ascended to heaven? Where he was when, where he was, excuse me, when he received the vision uh, of God's mercy extended to the Gentiles? Remember the sheet that fell with the animals on it? Do you remember where he was? Acts 10 said that Peter was praying on the roof of Simon the Tanner's house in the city of Joppa. Joppa. Peter was in the very port where Jonah fled the commission to go to the Gentiles. By God's mercy, friends, Jonah became the first prophet to cross the Jew-Gentile boundary, and Peter became the first apostle to cross that boundary with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Beloved, if God could forgive and restore Jonah by his mercy, if Jesus could forgive and restore his friend who denied him in his hour of need, don't you think he can forgive and restore you? Let's be honest, for most of us, the Lord hasn't just extended a second chance, but a third chance, a fourth chance, a thousandth chance. Don't hear me saying that sin doesn't have consequences. It does. Sometimes it's horrific. Don't hear me saying that there aren't certain types of sins that that disqualify one from biblical church offices. That is true as well. But friends, even so, our God is the God of the fresh start. He's the merciful God of the second chance. I don't know who needs to hear this word today. Maybe maybe you're here this morning and because of your struggle with sin, you wonder if you're usable by the Lord for his service. Maybe you're just racked this morning with guilt of the sinful choices and unwise decisions that you've made. And you feel, man, I'm just I'm just too sullied. I'm too ashamed by my sin to even think about the ways that the Lord could use me. Friends, just a reminder, just a reminder, what was true of Jonah is true for us. God doesn't use any of us because of us. Not a one of us. The only reason he uses us for his kingdom purposes is because of him. It's by the grace of God that we are what we are. The minute we start thinking otherwise is the minute that we've turned the gospel of grace into the gospel of achievement. Friend, if you question if God can use you, let me encourage you to just meditate on his dealings with his prophet Jonah. Maybe it's time for you to get off the beach and start walking in the right direction with the wind of the Spirit and his mercy at your back.
Perhaps the Lord will use you one day, maybe even one day soon, to comfort others with the comfort with which He's comforted you. Maybe you're grappling with God's grace against a particular sin or in a particular circumstance becomes a catalyst for walking with a fellow brother or sister through the very same type of thing. You just don't know what the Lord might want to do. But why withhold from yourself a second chance to be used by the Lord when the Lord is not withholding that chance from you? Our God is the God of the fresh start. Just look what he did with Jonah. Friends, we don't know God's ways fully. But maybe one reason that God allows moments or seasons of backsliding, even for us believers, is to take us deeper into his grace. Perhaps it's so that our memories of his mercies aren't just from way back then, but from last month or last week or yesterday. When our lives didn't even come close to matching our profession. Maybe God's aim is to remind us that the gospel we preach is the gospel we must experience every day. Jonah's fresh start, friends, wasn't only about mercy to him, though, was it? It's about God's purpose of mercy to Nineveh. God had purposes for the pagan, violent, outside his covenant Ninevites to hear his message. And in fact, God wanted to demonstrate to Nineveh the very same type of mercy that he extended to Jonah. And that leads us to point number two, a shocking response. In verses three and four, Jonah covers about 600 miles. The DVD immediately skips the beach from the beach to Nineveh, the great city of Assyria. And when Jonah arrived in Nineveh, he didn't waste time. He began proclaiming the message that the Lord gave him. What was the essential message? Judgment's coming. Verse four, now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. And he called out, yet 40 days in Nineveh shall be overthrown. Friends, Jonah's message could not be more explicit, right? Judgment's coming. But there are some implicit hints of, of judgment that the, the author drops for us in verses three and four that the savvy reader of Jonah can pick up on. For the original Israelite readers of Jonah, now for us Christians, just think about the reference to 40 days. Can you think of another 40-day period of time that was associated with God's judgment? Yeah, the most cataclysmic judgment ever. In Genesis 6, the scriptures say that the rains fell upon the earth for 40 days as God unleashed his wrath in universal judgment of the flood. Likewise, that word overthrown, that word that's translated overthrown in Jonah 3.4 is the same word used several times in Genesis 19 about the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, cities that were overthrown by the fire of God's judgment. So, so while Jonah's message to the Ninevites was short and sweet, it's like the writer of Jonah wants us to see in just this 3D depth the severity of what was coming to the Ninevites. Look back at verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 2. God told Jonah that, the, that Nineveh's evil had come up before him. Their wickedness had wafted like a stench in his nostrils, and now he is ready to bring down swift and severe punishment upon them. Friends, the fate of Nineveh would be the same fate of the world in Noah's day. 
the same fate of Sodom in Abraham's day. It's a reminder that all of us come to know God's mercy in contrast to what our sin actually deserves. Friends, as much as it may seem at times like God lets wickedness slide or that injustice skates by him unnoticed, passages like Jonah 3 remind us how far from the reality that that is. He's the righteous judge. His goodness and holiness compel his justice. All sin must be held into account. Otherwise, God would cease to be good. Friends, we need to remember that for people to understand the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, to understand God's mercy, they must first understand the bad news. The gospel includes a message of judgment. The gospel includes a message of judgment. You can't faithfully proclaim the gospel without sharing that because of our sin, we deserve God's righteous response of justice. We deserve hell. Friends, for people to make any sense of the cross, they first have to face the reality of their accountability to the God whom they have offended. Jonah's message doesn't seem to us like the best way to win friends and influence people, does it? Judgment's coming. Doom is going to descend. Wrath awaits. But friends, this ultimately was not Jonah's message. This was God's message. Jonah was just the messenger. And when God wants to demonstrate his mercy to a people, guess what he does? He makes his word effective in the ears of those who hear it. And that's what happened according to verse 5. And the people of Nineveh believed God. Come again? Run that, run that a second time by me. The people of Nineveh believed God. Friends, that's shocking. Just, just take a moment. Remember who Nineveh was. Remember who the people were. Nineveh is a major city of ancient Assyria whose military was known for its savage brutality. The Ninevites were pagan, polytheistic, and had no context prior of a relationship with the Lord. Can you imagine waltzing today through the streets of a major city in a country that's hostile to Christianity? A city that's in a country that's known for violence, right? Against those who preach this type of message. What, what would happen today if you waltzed into Taliban-controlled Kabul and publicly preached this message? What would you expect? What would you expect if you waltzed into Pyongyang, North Korea, or into Mogadishu, Somalia? Friends, you would expect imprisonment, perhaps death. But instead of mocking Jonah or incarcerating him, or killing him, the Ninevites shockingly believed Jonah's message. They took God at his word, which, friends, by the way, always is the doorway to repentance, taking God at his word. There's no human explanation for this. The only explanation for what happens here is a divine explanation. God caused his word to explode like a lightning bolt upon the consciences of the Ninevites. So much so that according to verse 5, they called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Now that seems like strange behavior to us, doesn't it? But fasting and the putting on of sackcloth, they're, they're, it's a common symbol of mourning in the ancient world. Sackcloth is literally what it sounds like. It's cloth that is like a sack, right? It's, it's coarse, it's rough, 
It's designed to signify humiliation. It was the acting out in one's dress of the posture of one's heart. Notice this public humbling was, it was indiscriminate, wasn't it? As all repentance should be. It wasn't just the commoners of the city who lowered themselves. No, the, the message was effective among the rich and powerful too. Even the king of the city believed God's word and he led the people in this ceremonial humiliation. Verse six, the word reached the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. That, that verse is almost poetic, isn't it? It's poetic. The king arose from his throne only to sit in the dust. He removed his royal robes to don sackcloth. Friends, by the end of this process, the king was indistinguishable from the rest of his people. His pleas were added to their pleas for God to have mercy upon them. God, in a moment, had completely dismantled the power structures of ancient Nineveh. Look at verse 7. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. <laughs> so thorough was the Ninevites' response that the king even ordered the animals to join in the mourning process. They are portrayed as sharing fully in the repentance of the city. Now, again, to us, this is bizarre. What a bizarre thing to decree. But remember, in an agrarian society, human beings and animals are really interdependent, right? It was natural for the animals to share in the public humiliation. Even the beasts share in the grief. It's not just that the people, though, are going through some external ritual mourning. That may be what it seems like up to this point, but look at the end of verse 8. In verse 8, the king says that the goal of all this was what? So that they might cry out mightily to God. That's the first hint that what's going on here isn't just corporate mourning for the judgment that's coming, but corporate repentance. It comes into full view in verse 9. The king continues, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hand. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. In other words, friends, the Ninevites, sackcloth, that was not a veneer of sorrow. It reflected what appears to be true sorrow for their sin. You see, the king's call, it wasn't for them merely to mourn their, their situation. The king's call was for them to mourn their sin. He called for them to turn. See that word? To turn from their evil and violence. Friends, this is the nature of true repentance. True sorrow over sin leads to true turning from it. Well, let's make sure we're on the same page here. What is repentance? What is biblical repentance? We're just kind of summarizing the biblical data. We could say that repentance is a change of mind that results in a change of life. Repentance is a change of mind that results in a change of life. It's like doing a 180, friends, in relation to your sin. It's doing a 180 from your sin. 
That's what we see here in the king of Nineveh. He believed God's word about judgment and the extent of the Ninevite sin and his change of mind issued in a change of life. He called for a total ethical reversal among the people. You see, friends, it's not enough merely to be sorry for sin. Well, that's certainly part of it. But feelings of sorriness are not an accurate barometer of one's repentance. It's possible, isn't it, to feel sorry for sin? but to be more concerned about the consequences of the sin, for instance, than the sin itself. Paul highlights this in 2 Corinthians 7. And in, in 2 Corinthians, Paul had acknowledges that he had written a severe letter to call out the Corinthian church's sin, and that that sin had caused, him, had caused them some grief over their sin. And he writes this in 2 Corinthians 7, verse 9. He says, As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. In other words, friends, from the Bible's perspective, there are two types of grief in relation to sin. One that Paul calls worldly grief. It's a false repentance. It's grief that, that is really entirely self-focused. It's grief maybe over getting caught. It's grief about the ramifications. But true godly grief, friends, is a sorrow that leads to repentance over the sin itself. Godly grief mourns how, the, how our sin has defamed the name of the Lord and how it has impacted the lives of others. Godly grief leads to true repentance a change of mind that leads to a change of life. And by the way, lest you think the difference really isn't that big of a deal, Paul says that worldly grief is a one-way street to death, whereas godly grief leads to salvation without regret. Friends, there's a tragic irony here to this story as we continue to think about repentance. The king of Nineveh repented in sackcloth and ashes. Meanwhile, back in Israel, King Jeroboam II didn't flinch from his wickedness when the prophet Amos preached to him. All the Ninevites sat in the dust. Meanwhile, the people of God were neck deep in idolatry. I think one thing this story is meant to do among many is to make us consider our response to God's word in light of the Ninevites. If pagan Nineveh responded like this, then what ought to be our posture towards sin? When someone speaks the truth to, in love to us, what should our response be? What ought to be our instinct when the word of God exposes parts of our hearts that are ungodly and that need to change? Friends, if you have a hard time as a Christian as a professing Christian admitting that you're ever wrong, well, that's a big problem. If what arises in your heart when graciously confronted by another believer, if what arises are always excuses or defenses or minimizing or, or reasons the person that's, that's talking to you must not be seeing the situation correctly, that you would, you would never, oh no, I would never do anything like that. My friend, you ought to be concerned. Because the reality is that 
Repentance isn't just something that we do upon our conversion. Repentance for the Christian is a way of life. It's not just that we turn from sin and turn to Jesus at the time of the new birth. Friends, that new birth and the transformed life of the Spirit is evidenced perpetually in a growing hatred of sin, in a growing distrust of ourself. You know what the local church is? The local church, friends, is a community of repenters. That's what we are. That may sound a little negative or a little Debbie Downer to you, but a church is a fellowship of believers who understand themselves to be sinners in desperate need of God's grace at all times. Beloved, it shouldn't surprise us when sin happens, even within the church's walls, so to speak. That's not what should surprise us. What should surprise us is when there's a lack of repentance. Friends, a huge part of cultivating a Christ-centered, gospel-saturated unity among us is both the willingness to repent of sin in our lives toward God and others and the willingness to reflect the mercy of God when someone does, when they repent before the Lord and they ask our forgiveness. Otherwise, guess what happens within the church? Sin festers. Resentment grows in the shadows. And the landmines of a fractured church are laid down, ready to be triggered by the enemy. Brothers and sisters, because of what we know to be true of the gospel and the sufficiency of Jesus' work for us on the cross, there is always, hear me, there is always a way forward for you in repentance. Always. It's not easy. It won't be easy. No, most of the time, pride is the easy way. Not having to deal with our sin is the easy way. And really dealing with our sin and confessing it and repenting of it, it is the hard way. But friends, the scripture has a lot to say, doesn't it? About the broad way and the narrow way. The easy path and the hard path. The easy path seems natural, but it leads to death. The hard path seems unnatural, but friends, it is filled with grace because God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. We see more of the humility of the king at the end of verse nine. After calling for citywide repentance, he says, who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Friends, it's remarkable to me how good this pagan king's theology was. He didn't presume upon God's mercy. He didn't understand himself to be entitled to mercy merely because of his repentance. He didn't understand this this ceremonial mourning to require God to relent from the judgment that was coming. No, his question is an admission that if God relents, it will be based on nothing besides God's free and gratuitous mercy. God was their only hope. This question of the king is, in my opinion, the climax of the plot line of Jonah 3. It all builds to this. Jonah preached. Nineveh responds. Now, what will God do? The king's question is meant to put us on the edge of our seats. Will God see the humility and and the change within the Ninevites and and plow them over anyway? Or will he display himself, show himself, demonstrate himself to be the God of mercy and steadfast love. That brings us to our last point this morning, a merciful God. We see that in verse 10. 
When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Praise God. Praise God, the people turned from their wickedness and God turned toward them in compassion. Friends, this is the nature of our God. Our repentance doesn't compel him to mercy, but his nature, friends, is to move toward the repentant with wide open arms of forgiveness. His heart is tender toward the broken. Indeed, blessed are those who mourn. We've seen this every step of the way in Jonah. In chapter one, we saw God's severe mercy in pursuing rebellious Jonah on the sea and then his saving mercy to the sailors who turned to him in faith. In chapter two, we saw the Lord mercifully snatch Jonah from the gates of death, delivering delivering him from the watery grave. And now in chapter three, we see God's mercy to an entire city. Each builds upon the other, just painting this stunning panorama of God's grace and mercy. Salvations of the Lord. He is the God whose mercy extends not just to his covenant people, but even to the Gentiles who repent, even to his enemies, even to people like us who are strangers to his covenant promise and separated from Christ. But God, but God, our sin is great. God's mercy is greater still. As wonderful as verse 10 is, it does raise a couple of questions, I think, about the about God's nature in this. You may not see the theological knots, but they are there. So let's untangle them just for a second. The first is this. How could an unchangeable, immutable God change his mind? He said he was going to destroy Nineveh, but he didn't. What, What gives? Does that mean God isn't sovereign? Does that mean, you know, that you can't depend upon what he says? No. What Jonah shows us, friends, is what we see in other places in the Bible and specifically throughout the prophets. You see, much of biblical prophecy is what we would call conditional communication. Conditional communication. What do I mean by that? Well, when God threatens judgment upon his people in Israel or upon the nations, he does so with a big, if you don't repent, condition. It's like this, you know, when an electric company warns you that your power is going to be turned off unless you pay your bill, What does that warning imply? If you do pay your bill, power's not going to be turned off, right? That's what's going on here. Listen to Jeremiah 18, 7 and 8. If at any time, the Lord says, if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from his evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do it. This is God making good on Jeremiah. This is what he does. The the old Scottish preacher, Hugh Martin, helpfully explains. I love this. It was wicked, violent, unrighteous, atheistical, proud, and luxurious Nineveh, which God had threatened to destroy. A city sitting in sackcloth and ashes, humbled in the depths of self-abasement, a Nineveh like that, that Nineveh, he had never threatened. That Nineveh, he visited not with ruin. He had never said he would. Friends, we understand God's sovereign purposes to include human responsibility. It is precisely because God is unchanging that we are encouraged to repent. 
God is unfailing in both his wrath against sin and his mercy toward true repentance. There is no variation in God's opposition to wickedness. We are always called to repent of sin, always. But hallelujah, there is no flightiness either in his joy in receiving sinners who call on his name and lay hold of his mercy. The second question, theologically, that this verse raises, I think, is about God's justice. How could he simply sweep Nineveh's sin, centuries of sin and violence and brutality, how could he sweep it under the rug like it never happened? How could he show them mercy and yet remain just? Well, my answer, friends, is that God didn't just ignore Nineveh's sin in relenting from his wrath. In fact, Within a generation, friends, sadly, it appears that Nineveh, by and large, had returned to her evil ways. Just read the prophet Nahum. It's a scathing rebuke of Nineveh's sin and the coming judgment of God upon them. And in 612 BC, the city of Nineveh was sacked and burned by the allied forces of the Persians, the Medes, and the Babylonians, and then others who had divided the region among them. Nineveh's sin eventually rebounded in judgment upon them, and now it is in ruins across from Mosul, Iraq. But the mercy of God to the Ninevites points us even further forward in history. How can God be both entirely merciful to forgive human wickedness while remaining entirely just in relationship to it? Friends, the answer is not found in Nineveh, but on a hill outside Jerusalem. The answer is found at the cross. Turn quickly to Romans 3. Romans 3. I'm going to start reading right in the middle of verse 22. You can scan your eyes up to see what's before. I'm going to start reading right in the middle of verse 22. Paul explains it so wonderfully. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, as a, as a wrath-satisfying sacrifice by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance, He had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. It's power packed, isn't it? Did you hear that? God did not pass over former sins because he didn't see them or because he's unjust, but because what Paul calls his divine forbearance. He restrained his wrath and mercy. Why? Why did God do that? So that he could demonstrate his righteousness in the death of his son. At Nineveh, at Nineveh, friends, God's mercy triumphed over justice in that God relented from his anger and temporarily passed over their sins. But you know what happened at the cross? At the cross, justice is fully served and mercy fully given. God is both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. Friends, we see in the cross of Christ 
the ferocity of God's righteous wrath against sin and the ferocity of his great love for sinners who repent and turn to Jesus by faith. Friend, if you're here and you're not a Christian, first of all, welcome again. Welcome again to Redeeming Grace. We're so glad you're here. But listen, I hope this story of Nineveh, the repentance that we see in in Nineveh, the coming judgment of God, I hope it both sobers you and encourages you. I hope it reminds you, friend, that you're not autonomous. You're accountable to your creator who made you to reflect his glory and obedience to him. You, friend, like all of us, are children of Adam. We're sinners through and through. We've rebelled against our creator. We are, by nature, self-worshippers rather than God-worshippers. We're naturally curved in toward ourself and self-love rather than upward toward God in love of him and outward in love of others selflessly. And because of our sin, friends, we deserve to die, just like Nineveh did. But this message of Jesus that I just read about in Romans really is, friends, the divine solution to humanity's problem. In love, God made a way back to him. Friends, Jesus Christ didn't just live the life that we should have lived. He died on the cross to bear the penalty of our sins, and then he rose from the dead on the third day to seal it all and to conquer death forever for all those who would trust him. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. Even right now, the risen Jesus is the ascended Lord. We read about it in Isaiah 45 that Philippians 2 quotes. He's the name that is above every name. He's exalted to the highest place. This means that to follow Jesus and receive God's salvation means that you not only trust in Jesus as your Savior, friends, you must bow your knee to him as your Lord and as your God. It requires repentance. Reconciliation with God is a wonderfully free gift, but it will cost you your life. Friend, what will it take for you to repent of your sins and trust in the work of Jesus? You know, when Jonah was in the belly of the fish, look over at chapter 2, verse 8. Chapter 2, verse 8, Jonah prayed in the belly of the fish, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Friends, what if I could convince you that by worshiping false gods like success and wealth and pleasure, recreation, security, comfort, achievement, what if I could convince you that by paying regard to those things, vain idols, what if I could convince you that you were in doing that forsaking your only hope of the life-giving, soul-satisfying love that God created you to know. Would you repent then? Friend, if you'll turn to God for his mercy through Christ Jesus, you'll find that like the Ninevites, God's heart is warmed toward you in compassion. He'll not only relent from the justice of what your sin has earned, you'll find actually that God satisfied his own wrath in the death of Christ. And that will just be the beginning of God's great mercy toward you for all of eternity. Friends, Nineveh stands as an eternal witness. Their repentance and God's mercy is forever a testimony to the grace of God for all, for all who humble themselves in faith. Jesus said this, we read it earlier, Leslie did. 
As Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. Friends, just as Jonah's burial in the fish and his resurrection preceded his proclamation to Nineveh, it came before that, so Jesus' death and resurrection precedes the churches, our proclamation of the gospel to all nations. Jonah's mission to go to Nineveh, guess what it is? That mission to the Gentiles is like a, a Great Commission missions preview of our role to take the gospel to the nations, to take this global gospel of Jesus Christ who offers forgiveness to all who repent and believe and seek a saving grace to take it to all the nations. But you know, Nineveh not only bears witness to the stunning mercy of God, it also bears witness to a sober responsibility that we all have to turn from sin to Christ. Friends, for those who harden their hearts against God's mercy, it's not going to merely be the Lord Jesus Christ who bears witness against you on that last day. Did you hear what Leslie read earlier? Jesus adds, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray for the requisite humility to own our sin and to turn from it and to embrace the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, Father, I pray that if there's anyone here who doesn't know you, who's never done that, who's never bowed their knee and humbled their heart to the Lord and God of the universe, the one who reigns right now from your right hand, our Lord Jesus Christ, that they would do that even today. Oh, Lord Jesus, help them to see in the cross your arms open wide in mercy. Even as you were stretched upon the cross, you had them in mind. You died for all those who would turn from their sin to you. Oh, Father, I pray for those of us who do know you. Help this, this reminder from Nineveh today to encourage our hearts that we must be a people who frequently, regularly, repent and turn back to your grace in Christ. Oh God, humble our hearts, we pray. Strip all forms of pride from us. We ask that we might love each other well in the gospel. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.